Hi, I'm Heather Mulder. And I'm Janice Greeno, and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Hello and welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of our podcast. Today, our conversation will be with Angela Lundy, an associate in neurology and serves as a co-director for the Outreach, Recruitment and Engagement Corps in the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Mayo Clinic. And we're gonna be talking about mindfulness. You know, Janice, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because it seems like caregivers and, and people in general are, we're looking forward, we're thinking about and anticipating what's going to happen in the future, or we're looking back and thinking about how things have played out, decisions that we've made in the past, and it's so hard to be in the moment. It's so true, and sometimes when we're going through this, we can be hard on ourselves and we need to be more self-compassionate. And living with dementia is known to be so difficult and so full of changes and challenges. And caregivers need support and something available to them in those moments. And as a lifestyle, especially when it comes to that word self-compassion, and you hear of so many health benefits that come with mindfulness, but I'm especially interested in finding out about mindfulness for caregivers. Well, welcome, Angela. Thank you so much for joining Dementia Untangled today. Well, thank you. Good to be with you, Heather and Janice. So we always like to start out our conversations in a similar fashion and learn a little bit more about you. Could you tell us uh, some more about your journey and what led you to connect with the dementia community? Yeah, happy to. This this happened now for me about 20 years ago, and I I had I was I was in another job uh, in in the community that I live in here in Minnesota, and was really for all purposes I think uh, I, I I liked the work that I did, but I was really at a place in my life where I was ready for a new challenge. And so I had uh, seen uh, a job opportunity come up at the Mayo Clinic, and the job was for a dementia education specialist. And so I went and um, interviewed for the job. And you know how when you're in a job interview, usually at the very end, they'll say, so do you have any questions for us? And I said, I I really just have one question. Uh, And my question is, can you tell me what the word dementia is? And and that was a real honest question. I actually didn't know what the word dementia was. Uh, I didn't know what it meant. At that point in my life, I didn't know anybody with dementia. So it it really fulfilled this need I had to to move into a, a space that would challenge me. But it did become a little bit difficult in in those early years uh, because I I didn't know much about this. Um, And I didn't have uh, a large group at that time of of teachers and colleagues who were telling me all about what this disease meant. But in the end, I really found out that not knowing much about dementia came to really serve me well because I made the decision in those first couple of years to reach out and get to know people 
with dementia. So I went to my church and asked if I could volunteer or do respite for anybody who might be caring for somebody uh, with dementia. I went to uh, Assisi Heights, which is a, is a Franciscan convent here in Rochester, and asked if I could volunteer with a sister who had dementia. Um, I connected with a friend who owned, owned a memory care community in the Minneapolis area and asked her if I could come and just stay uh, and, and live with the residents for a couple of weeks. I I facilitated caregiver support groups really early on. And all of this really provided me what I think was a really unique opportunity to understand dementia through the lens of the subjective experience or through the lens of those who are living with this condition. I later went on to, to understand more about the disease and the pathology and the etiology and all of the sorts of nuances that my medical colleagues taught me. Um, but it really did set the stage for me to think about what I wanted to do in my role to really support families and to really feel like I had some sense about what this experience was really like. So really my, my teachers, you know, really were current and former caregivers, um, the sisters. Um, I, I also connected with, you know, important individuals who helped me understand grief and loss. Um, a woman named Margaret Montau Rao, who, who wrote a book that you'll probably hear me speak about a little bit later on, on caring for a loved one with dementia. I was inspired by Pauline Boss and Kristen Neff, and all of that led to my journey with dementia and I think the approach and the way that I'm currently choosing to support caregivers. That's such an incredible story. It's like you're you're attending the school of life and really able to kind of dive in and you know spread your wings and explore and come to kind of your own conclusions of what's going to be beneficial in supporting people with dementia and caregivers. Um, now, you have in your work taken a particular interest in caregivers. Can you summarize what are the sort of common struggles that you're seeing dementia caregivers facing? Yeah, I love what you said, Heather, that it really, yeah, I think my training really came from the school of life and the school of caregivers. Um, and I think because of that, because I think I, I became, you know, really intrigued and inspired by, by the role, the unexpected and the unrequested role that they had to take on. That I, I got a sense uh, of what this experience might might be like, and and here's you know here's how I kind of have thought about it, and here's how I like to set the stage sometimes is, is that I think we could all imagine um, that we're running a marathon, um, and for for many of us we probably wouldn't choose to run a marathon. We didn't sign up for this marathon, but yet we're told we have to, and we have to run the race until the end. And in this race, we're asked to carry a heavy load on our shoulders. And there's a good chance that this load is gonna get heavier and heavier as the race goes on. And then to add to the challenge, right? You're, you're never sure how far away the finish line is or whether someone might come along to help carry some of the load. And, and I think this analogy kind of reflects what the caregiving experience can feel like. And, and so what I, what I've believed early on in my work is that caregivers need some way to tap into inner strength and resilience and to care for themselves over this long haul, over this long marathon. And it was really 
mindfulness, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about later, that I really believe became a path and can become a, a path for that inner strength and that resilience. You know, caregivers, you asked Heather, what, what are some of the things that caregivers struggle with? And in my experience, you know, they struggle first and foremost with the disease and all that the disease, you know, is. Uh, and, and most of the listeners out there probably know firsthand what comes with this disease. But they also str struggle in changes in the relationship. You know, this person with dementia is not you know, the, the relationship that they have with them is changing and there's grief and loss in that change. Um, they're taking on unexpected roles in addition to everyday demands that they have. They're, they're taking on, you know, the expectations uh, of others as well as probably putting significant expectations on themselves about how they should be in this caregiving role. And, and that leads to, you know, for many caregivers, if I ask what are some of the common emotions that you're experiencing, I think um, four come to my mind. Um, one, is, uh, one is guilt, grief, loss. And I think the other one I hear is resentment. And so what I've learned is that while caregivers have some very common struggles, I also began to realize that they experience this caregiving role in vastly different ways. And, and what I mean by that is some caregivers, I think, really find themselves in this very dark place that they can't get out of. And yet there's another group of caregivers who somehow find this way to overcome the challenges and develop this sense of, of resilience. So for me, it was really in trying to uncover where does that resilience come from in some of these caregivers? Why are some caregivers you know, on this path of resilience while others stay really stuck in this dark place? And that really led me to explore mindfulness, um, both on a, on a personal and a professional level. It's so interesting to hear you talk about your life journey. And I love this analogy about a marathon that someone didn't sign up for and that it is possible to be resilient. And you've learned so much from uh, caregivers and Tell me, where does that resilience come from? Yeah, you know, I, I think first and foremost, one of the things that, that I always like to preface conversations around caregivers, when I'm speaking about caregivers, mm. is, is to really recognize, and one of the things I learned early on is that when you've met one caregiver, you've met one caregiver. I think we sometimes hear the, the saying, when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. And I think the same really holds true for, for caregivers. They're each going to experience this in their own way. They're each going to come up with their own set of solutions. They're each going to have their own strategies. Um, and they're each going to have their own struggles and, and sort of uh, emotional um, reactions to situations. And I think it's not our job, my jo job or anybody's job to judge but to really be open, non-judgmental, and to hold space for these caregivers. But I also learned um, that dementia caregivers, while they share some similar situations, while they share some common struggles, 
it is there is some vast differences in how they respond and, and how they cope with this situation. Uh, you know, some resist and blame and deny and see their situation as dark and hopeless. And, you know, this this is normal, you know, and maybe expected, especially in the weeks and months following a diagnosis. I mean, who wouldn't have these kinds of emotions? But the problem is, if these emotions or this way of responding hangs on and is prolonged, it will affect the caregiver's overall well-being. Uh, their overall well-being will be negatively affected, and that means probably the person they're caring for is also going to be negatively affected. But fortunately, what I've, what I've learned um, to your question, Janice, is I have also witnessed many caregivers who have made their way out of the darkness. And, and one that I think of in particular was a woman um, that I met probably, I don't know now, 15 years ago or so, and her name was Mary Margaret. And Mary Margaret was really at first in this very dark, difficult place. And, and there was a lot of blaming and denying uh, and resisting her situation. And I remember spending, you know, a couple of years with, with Mary Margaret alongside her as she was on this caregiving journey. And I remember a pivotal change for her. And things just seemed to be different. And her ability to cope seemed to be vastly improved. And I asked Mary Margaret, what has changed? And she said to me, everything changed when I moved to a place of acceptance. Everything changed when I moved to a place of acceptance. And that opened my eyes. And what I began to discover is I think acceptance is the common denominator for caregivers who make their way out of the darkness. What a powerful statement, Angela, and, and so thoughtful. I think we um, who work with caregivers and with people living with dementia, we're often trying to find ways to help people move to acceptance, but that's such a, a, difficult, um, a difficult step for them to make. I'm wondering if you could help us define what do you mean by acceptance? Um, you know, particularly what is acceptance and what is not acceptance? And what does that have to do with mindfulness? Sure, and, and a really, really important question, Heather, because I think to some degree, we all think we accept our situations. Um, and, and so it doesn't feel like it should be that hard. But in reality, when faced with really aversive life changes, most of us find ourselves in denial, at least for a while, and, and rightfully so. I mean, denial is actually a coping strategy. It's just that if it lingers too long, it does impact our well-being. Um, but when I talk about what acceptance really is, I'd like to start, I think it's, it's easiest to think about what acceptance is not. So when I talk about acceptance, acceptance is not the same as giving up or giving in. Acceptance is not apathy. Acceptance is not liking the way things are or condoning the situation or agreeing with or supporting the unfairness of your situation. That's, that's not acceptance. Acceptance is this. 
at least this is how I like to think about it. Acceptance is simply a choice and it's a choice to be with your situation just as it is. And in addition to that, it's giving, acceptance is giving your full attention to what's happening now, including whatever you are feeling, even if those feelings are resentment and guilt and anger. In this way, acceptance actually can be thought of as a synonym for mindfulness, because when we are mindful, by definition, we are giving our full attention to whatever is happening now. You've heard this, you've heard of mindfulness described as being in the present moment. But we're actually in the present moment and we're paying attention in a particular way. Mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment and your experience as it is in an accepting way, in a non-judgmental way, and in a self-compassionate way. And when we take in our experience in this way, accepting, non-judgmental, and, and in a self-compassionate way, something incredible happens. Something transformative happens. Our stress takes a back seat. In a sense, it begins to diminish. It's so interesting to hear you talk about being mindful um, by paying attention, by accepting things in this non-judgmental, self-compassionate way, and that in doing so, that we can reduce stress in in our bodies. So how does this happen? What's going on physically? Yeah, so... Here's how one of my teachers described it that I really like. Um, It allows us to sort of paint a picture in our mind. So I think most of us are familiar with, you know, these snow globes. We may have had them as a kid. Right. Um, So so picture the snow globe. And, and you know, when you shake the globe, the sand and the water get all stirred up and they make the water cloudy. But yet when we put the globe down and we leave it alone – guess what happens? The sand settles and the water becomes clear again. And so what's going on, I think, in our mind, we can liken it to this globe. So our mind is like the sand and water. Our head oftentimes is swirling with all these runaway thoughts and emotions. And oftentimes we're not even aware of how many thoughts and emotions are ruminating in our head. Mindfulness is essentially the opposite of being lost in these, in, in, in these thoughts. It is paying attention to what we are doing, thinking, or feeling at any given moment. So you don't have to control your thoughts with mindfulness. You don't have to quiet them down. It's just you being aware of them as they arise. Because any time, any moment you are aware of your thoughts or how you are feeling, the sand, those swirling thoughts in your mind begin to settle because you're creating some space between your thoughts and your reactions. And the space can help you cope better. So again, it's, it's that 
simple analogy I know, but for me, when I heard this, it was really powerful because we are often so caught up in our thoughts, but we don't know how to settle them. And that's essentially letting the sand in the globe settle to the bottom so our minds and our bodies can be clear and calm again is what's happening when we practice mindfulness. I think that analogy is really an impactful way to kind of understand mindfulness um, and the importance of it. But, and I understand that mindfulness is paying attention to what we're doing, we're thinking, and we're feeling at any given moment. But I'm sure I'm not alone in finding this to be incredibly difficult because I'm thinking about what I need to do next. I'm thinking about what I just finished and maybe what I forgot to do. Why is this so difficult for us to put that pause, let the sand settle, and pay attention to our thoughts and our feelings? I think that the simplest answer is because we just don't do it. And we, we just, we're on autopilot typically. You know, the, the truth is, Heather, um, that science has, and research has, has, has uh, shown that um, most of us probably spend nearly 50% of our waking hours engaged with what psychologists call mind wandering or our brain on autopilot. And when, our, when we are mind wandering, uh, all our decisions and actions are, are affected. And, and think about, you know, as you mentioned, how, Heather, how often we do this. You know, have you ever had a time where you've like, you're getting in your car and you're going from, you know, point A to point B. And by the time you arrive wherever you were going, you actually might pause for a moment and you might even recall, you, you, might, you might have this, um, this, this recognition that you had no, you have no idea how you got there, right? You weren't paying attention to any of the things along the way. Your mind was completely absorbed in something other than the road and the things that you were driving by. But here's the real problem with that. When your mind is on autopilot, you know, what are you thinking about? Most often, as you mentioned, Heather, you're checking in with the past, thinking about, um, uh, a room, a, a difficult conversation or a negative event that happened. So you're ruminating about the past or you're thinking about the future. And future is generally thinking about uncertainty and worry and fear. So this means when we're caught up in our own thinking or when we're on autopilot, 50% of the time that's happening and most of the time those automatic sorts of thoughts and emotions we're having are, are negative. And, and here's, here's the real important part. When we think about stress, all stress begins with a thought. And our stressed response can't distinguish between what's a real threat and what is just our mind in a thought cycle of regret, worry, and what ifs. So our thoughts, while they may be real, aren't necessarily true. So what mindfulness does is it helps us live more fully in the present. And I'm hoping you are beginning to see why that can be so beneficial to your overall well-being. So you mentioned earlier that mindfulness and being in the present is about paying attention in a particular way. And you said in an accepting way, in a non-judgmental way, 
and a self-compassionate way. So can you dive in a little bit and say more about these particular ways? Really important because, yeah, it, it, we really need to have mindfulness being done in a particular way. So what I mean by an accepting way, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, in an accepting way means being honest about what you can and cannot control. That's, a, that's sometimes a hard lesson, but an important lesson for caregivers. They want to be able to control a lot. They want to be able to control, um, you know, many aspects of their, their loved one's disease. And at some time, most caregivers, many caregivers come to realize one of the things they can't control is they, they can't save their loved one. Um, it also means accepting what you're feeling. Uh, to feel what you feel. Uh, we must first acknowledge, we have to give our emotions some permission to breathe. Um, it's important that we bring them to the surface and acknowledge them or they, they, get, we get, they get stuffed down in us and they actually find a way to impact our lives in negative ways when they're not given an opportunity to be acknowledged. And, and there's, there's a... Um, a quote that John Kabat-Zinn says, and it's this, in order to change negative feelings, we first have to notice them. To be in a relationship with what you're going through, to hold it, and in some sense to befriend it is where the healing lies. Secondly, we need to be mindful in a non-judgmental way. And here it's really important to pay attention to our self-talk. Self-talk is the way you talk to yourself in your head. These automatic thoughts can be positive or negative, but more often they're negative. And they include self-doubt, self-criticism, regret, guilt, shoulds. Uh, a should statement is when you feel like you should think, feel, or behave in a particular way. And it's an important to know when you're engaged in negative self-talk and the truth is most of us do it all the time. But with mindfulness, we notice and then we can learn to change the pattern. And the third aspect of being mindful is to be mindful in a self-compassionate way. Self-compassion helps you remember um, that we are all imperfect and treating yourself with kindness and forgiveness the same way that you would treat or talk to a good friend. For example, you might tell yourself, you know, this is stressful. I'm doing the best I can right now. We need to give ourselves compassion so that we have emotion, enough emotional stability to be there and to give it to others. Those are the things, those are the ways we need to practice mindfulness. Angela, you've given us really the how so far with mindfulness. I'm wondering if you could share the what. What are the overall benefits that someone could expect um, practicing mindfulness? You know, mindfulness is probably one of the best and most powerful stress reduction techniques at our disposal. Uh, it, it really, uh, it, it mobilizes our, what's called a parasympathetic system, which is part of our autonomous nervous system. And that's responsible, um, I like to think about it being responsible for rest and digestion, as well as for energy conservation. And by practicing mindfulness, um, we introduce the possibility of less reactivity 
to stressful situations. With prolonged stress, we undoubtedly run down our immune system and our bodies produce greater levels of this stress hormone called cortisol. And that opens the door for more inflammation. So what mindfulness can do is that it can increase our immunological response and thereby reduces um, not only um, our, our cortisol levels as well as blood pressure. There's a lot of, of research now that shows that overall mindfulness has been shown to relieve stress and anxiety. Uh, I already talked about regulating emotions. It can ease pain and fatigue, improve empathy, uh, and also been shown to improve optimal cognitive function. And there's even some studies, um, Heather, that suggest that mindfulness training can help repair damage done by stress and actually change the structure of the brain in a way that makes us better able to re re regulate our emotion and our resilience to stress. So it is that powerful. Angela, I love hearing about how powerful it is and how it is available to us. It's available to our caregivers um, as a practice for their life or as they need it in those moments. So is there one specific mindfulness practice that you have found that's really helpful for caregivers? And if so, can you tell us more about it? Yeah, the one, um, the, the one that I think when I, when I teach a mindfulness program to caregivers, um, the one that they tell me is most impactful for them is a, is a practice called STOP, S-T-O-P. And this is a practice that was developed uh, by John Kabat-Zinn. And STOP actually stands for S is stop, uh, T is take a breath, O is observe, and P is proceed. And it's, it's an informal practice that can be used in a couple of ways. The first is that it's really an opportunity to check in with yourself. Remember, I talked earlier that we just get caught up in all of these thoughts. Sometimes, again, we're not even aware that we're doing it, but our thoughts cause stress. So with this practice, you check in with yourself at regular times throughout the day, and this provides an opportunity to step back from the runaway thoughts, to step back from everyday stressors, and remind yourself to come back to the present moment. So the way you do this one is um, you identify something that you do in your everyday life. Like perhaps for some of us, um, we drive in a car and so we are stopped at a stoplight. I like this one because stopped at a stoplight makes it easy to remember the stop practice. So if you, if you let a stop sign or a stop light really be your cue to pause. So here's what I do when I'm at a stoplight. That's my cue. I know now I want to pause. So I S stop T I take a couple breaths. O I observe my thoughts. And it's really interesting to kind of know where, what was I thinking? Where has my mind gone? And I think, as you mentioned, Heather, for me and for you and for all of us, typically our mind is ruminating about the past or worrying about the future. I also observe how I'm feeling. I take a look around now and observe what is surrounding me. So uh, an, another potential place to put the stop practice in place is like when you get home, you know, if 
we all have to open the door to our house. So imagine you touch the doorknob and that doorknob is your cue to stop. So to stop before you open the door, take a breath, observe kind of where you are emotionally. Um, and, and this is a really good one as well, because sometimes we take our emotions from our day into the house with us. So if we use this stop practice before we enter the house or before we greet um, a family member or a person with dementia, we're giving ourselves an opportunity to pause. And, and research shows that by simply acknowledging and naming your emotion, it can have a calming effect. And the, la the other thing I want to say too about stop is there's another place for stop uh, can also be when the stakes are higher. So let's say um, something has triggered you. Maybe your loved one with dementia is blaming you for something you didn't do, or a family member is criticizing you for how you handled something. Uh, our mind is typically on autopilot, so we're typically judging that situation as bad, followed by a number of unhelpful thoughts, such as, oh my gosh, here we go again, or I can't take this anymore. Maybe you say to yourself, I'm such a bad caregiver, or how could they keep blaming me for something they, that I didn't do? Typically, that's followed by some physical tension, and then any number of emotions that can build in you, such as resentment or anger or agitation. And you often then react and you say something that in turn causes a negative reaction from the other person. And now we have even more stress and a pretty poor outcome. So here's how mindfulness helps. In this particular situation, Janice, the magic moment, the magic moment is when you are aware of your thoughts or your physical tension and your feelings. Just that awareness creates enough of a pause so that instead of that usual knee-jerk reaction, you pause, you may take a breath, and you give yourself a moment to offer a thoughtful response versus a reaction and probably a better outcome. So mindfully responding to stress instead of reacting habitually is what uh, John Kabat-Zinn calls the mindfulness-mediated stress response. And when we practice this, and I will tell you, it will not come automatically and it does take practice, but when we do, everyday situations won't trigger us in the same way. We get brought back to the present moment and it's when we're in that present moment that we can regain perspective and we can better regulate our response to pressure. And in a sense, now we have a tool to manage stress. Wow, that is so powerful. I love how this is simple. It's something that could be integrated into our routine. We start with small steps of just, we're sitting at a traffic light. We touch our doorknob and it cues us to work through the steps of stop. But then I can see how that also would start to blend into everyday situations where we start to notice when we're being triggered. So I'm sold, Angela, on mindfulness. You know, we're all here together right now. 
could you maybe just take a couple minutes to guide us through a short mindfulness practice? I would love to. I'm going to take you through a breathing practice because focusing your attention on your breath um, not only is a common mindfulness practice, but it's also very practical since your breath is always in the present. So this practice becomes a way to stay as well as return to the present moment. So here we go. Find a comfortable position, seated on a chair or on the floor or on a cushion. Your eyes can be opened or closed. And now I want you to take three full breaths in and out. It can be through your nose, can be out through your nose or your mouth. You might notice the rise and fall of your belly. And then after that, your three full breaths. I want you now just to return to your natural breathing. Tune into that breath. And I want you to feel and what I want you to feel is the natural flow of your breath in and out. You don't need to change anything about how you're breathing. Notice where do you feel your breath in your body? It may be your belly. You may notice it in your chest, your throat or nostrils. Be aware of where the breath enters and leaves. Maybe there's a sound, a texture, a temperature, a pattern. When you find your mind has wandered, and for most of you, it probably already has, and that's okay. When that happens and you're no longer paying attention to your breath, this is the magic moment. This is the time to stop yourself and gently guide yourself back to your breath. Mindfulness is not the ability to constantly stay focused on one thing like your breath. Mindfulness is to notice when your mind goes someplace else the magic moment is noticing it and then bringing it back. And as you do this mindfulness exercise, you may need to bring your attention back to the breath over and over and over again. So I'm going to give you about 15 more seconds. Bring your attention back to your breath. If the mind wanders, Bring your attention back to your breath. So this is a practice you can do anytime, any day, anywhere. Um, I recommend that you practice this exercise uh, for five to 15 minutes, two or three times a day. It really 
does provide you an opportunity to have an invaluable tool at your disposal anytime you need, anytime there's a stressor, anytime you just want to bring your your mind and your body back to the present moment for all of the good reasons we talked about today, this is a practice you can use. Today, our conversation has been with Angela Lundy, Associate in Neurology. She also serves as the co-director for the Outreach, Recruitment, and Engagement Corps in the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Mayo Clinic. Angela, thank you so much for your time um, in our conversation today and helping us untangle mindfulness for caregivers. Good to be with you, Heather and Janice. Thank you so much, Angela. And thank you, Heather, for another great conversation. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers, and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation. Please visit our website at banneralz.org and follow us on Facebook to learn more about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com.